Brethren, will you continue in our worship together by turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as we give ourselves in faith to hearing God's Word and to the preaching of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, today we are beginning a new sermon series. I am really excited about this. I'm really excited to get going on this. We're going to spend the next year or so, roughly, maybe a little bit less, working passage by passage, verse by verse, through the book of 1 Corinthians. And just to prepare you, as my wife likes to say, prepare yourselves. We're going to study it all. There is a lot of confusing stuff in this book. There's a lot of controversial stuff in this book. There's a lot of cringeworthy stuff in this book. 1 Corinthians, I promise you, you're not going to be bored. No matter how long it takes us to get through it. But we are embarking on this year-long study uh, to see what the book of 1 Corinthians has for us. Um, Today, though, we're actually not going to begin, per se, we're not going to begin with any sort of exposition. My goal today, really, I just want to give you a kind of brief overview of the book. My goal really is just to point out a few themes to kind of give us some solid footing on then to to then launch as next Sunday we will begin with that verse by verse exposition. And so that's our goal this morning, just an overview of the book of 1 Corinthians. Let's begin though by reading verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1. Brethren, this is God's word. Remember and receive it as such. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you, excuse me, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This is God's Word. Bow with me again, briefly in prayer. Our Father, we ask that You would send the Holy Spirit because of what Christ has secured and earned for us in His accomplished work. We pray that You would pour it out among us today that we might hear and understand and obey Your Word. We pray, Lord, that You would meet with us and speak Speak to us. Hear us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about the church in Corinth and you think about the book of 1 Corinthians? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? If I had to guess, I I would bet all of you, without exception, immediately think of something negative. I mean, isn't the book of 1 Corinthians, isn't Corinth notorious for being just an absolute train wreck? Aren't we, you know, all aware, don't we even at times blush at some of the utterly filthy and shameful things that were going on in this congregation? I mean, once we get um, beyond these opening salutations and greetings, don't we see right away that there are deep divisions within this church? The first thing Paul mentions, 
Apparently, everyone in their church had picked their favorite elder or their favorite apostle or their favorite preacher, and they had despised and even separated themselves from the others. They were so divided as a congregation that they were suing one another, taking one another to court. Can you imagine if one one of a fellow church member sued you? Going after your money? Going after your reputation? That must have made Sunday mornings pretty intense, huh? You know? See you in court tomorrow, Bill. Right? Even in their observance of the Lord's Supper, which is supposed to be the most unifying practice in the church, they were taking the bread and the wine and going off on their own or going off by themselves or going off within their own little uh, clique and they were using the supper, supper to get drunk. Can you imagine a church, right, where people got hammered at the Lord's Supper? That they used the elements to spite one another. Talk about lightning about to strike, right? And yet, if you thought these things are bad, wait till I get going, right? (laughs) There was also rampant sexual immorality in the church. One man was sleeping with his stepmom, and the rest of the church approved of it, apparently using that situation to boast of their love and tolerance. It's clear that some within the church defended the practice of visiting prostitutes. This is actually part of a deeper issue related to their infatuation with pagan practices around them. This was a church that was enamored with worldly wisdom and philosophy. They were enamored with, uh, at that time, they had um, these traveling professional um, public speakers with, with very elaborate rhetoric that would come and speak. And they would tell them exactly what they wanted to hear. It's kind of like a motivational speaker in our day except with the sinful twist, and the church loved it. Many in the church also participated in pagan rituals and ceremonies. When it came to the actual worship of the church, if you thought getting drunk at the Lord's Supper was crazy, well, that was just the tip of the iceberg. There was, it was chaotic. There was every excess of speaking in tongues and prophecies everybody was apparently doing anything they wanted to do in the church service and they were fighting over who got to do what and when and how i mean i could go on and on about just how this church was an absolute mess i mean if this church was down the road from us would we even call it a true church would we ever even consider joining or even visiting such a church it sounds more like, you know, reality TV, doesn't it? Like an outlandish soap opera. But I want to ask you, what would you do, or what would you say if you were in the shoes of the Apostle Paul? Paul had spent 18 months planting and establishing this church. Now he leaves, thinking that he's leaving the church in good hands. And just a few years later, he finds out about all of this. How would you write to this church? What would you say to this church? How would you handle this situation? Would we be tempted to to, to lay down the law? To throw around our weight as an apostle, as the founding pastor? I'm the one who's in authority over you. I'm, you know, get in line or else. Wouldn't we be tempted to be totally exasperated, to throw up our hands and think, well, you know what? They've fallen so far, so fast. 
and ain't no use. The reason I ask you this is because although we might never or rarely think something positive about this church when we think about 1 Corinthians, I mean, did you notice how the letter began? In light of everything that's going on, the Apostle Paul, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, addresses them as the church of God. True church. Those sanctified or holy or pure in Christ Jesus. And those who, when he says, call upon the name of the Lord with everyone else, they're part of the larger universal church of the true worship of God. I can't tell you how many times I get halfway through this epistle and I'm like, I need to make sure I read the beginning the right way. And I flip back just to make sure. Right? You compare this with Galatians. He doesn't start this way. He's like, you're on the verge of total apostasy. But here, they are a holy and pure and true church in the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, I point this out today because I believe this is key to our study of the letter. I believe this is kind of the firm foundation that we need to plant our feet on if we are going to, over the next year, properly understand and apply this letter. It would be so much easier to approach this book, to look at this church, and say, well, that's clearly not a true church. That's a synagogue of Satan. There would never be such things in a true church. The implication of being, we would never see such things in our midst. But you know how easy it is to study God's Word and focus on everybody else's sin? All those people out there, all those churches out there, all those crazy so-called Christians out there, you know, the ones you see on social media. The truth is, brethren, although we may not have the same sins exactly as the church in Corinth, the seeds of those sins and what they struggled with are all around us. Every sin and every problem and every temptation that shows up in Corinth shows up in our churches from time to time as well. No church is perfect in this age. No church is immune to these very same things. So brethren, I want you to see how this letter helps us guard ourselves from these things. And they help us learn to address and counsel and deal with these things and with these temptations and when these, and these realities when they show up. And what I want you to see today is that at the end of the day, all of these sins, all of these problems, and, and anything else that you can imagine are only rightly addressed when Jesus Christ and Him crucified lies at the heart of of everything in our churches, everything in our homes, and everything in our lives. The mess that was the church in Corinth was written down for our instruction, for our help, for our faith and hope and love and perseverance. And Christ and Him crucified is the center and centerpiece of its entire message. That's what I want you to see today. With this in mind, I just want to point out three themes today. Um, And when I first wrote down the themes of this letter, I I had seven or eight, so I've really chopped this down to three. So it's very broad, 
I don't want you to think I'm exhaustive here, but three themes that help us approach this letter. Three themes that help us understand it and navigate it as we dive in and study it beginning next week. First theme is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Um, What I want to do here is give you a little background of first century Corinth and the culture. Uh, But I don't want to just give you a history lesson. Right? I'm not just going to you know, give you a bunch of facts. You know, I'm not doing a, a research project on Corinth here. If you want to do that on your own, I would encourage you to do it. Um, grab a good study Bible, and they can give you a lot of really helpful information on what Corinth is like and the background and all of those things. That, that's not my goal here today. Uh, if you need a recommendation for a good study Bible, come talk to me. Uh, but I do want to give you some of that background for a particular purpose, because I want you to see how the sovereignty of God um, plays a role in um, the situation in Corinth, our understanding of it. So uh, Corinth in the first century was one of the wealthiest and most important cities in ancient Greece. It was an urban city, a fairly big city in that day. Um, it was filled probably, I estimate 50,000 maybe, uh, which back then was, was, was pretty big. It was filled um, with a lot of people coming and going because it was a port city. It was a port city on a very important trade route. Much of the commerce uh, between Italy and Asia had to go through Corinth. At the time, um, first century here, it was also undergoing a, a sort of economic boom, This had drawn a lot of people in because there was a lot of money to be made in Corinth. So it drew in the wealthy. It drew in also the intellectuals. So it was a a city that prided itself as, you know, being on the cutting edge of, of, I don't know, progressivism in that day. Just cutting edge of, of wisdom and intellectualism. And of course, with that, it brought in the hedonists as well. It was a place where all the evils of the ancient world were on hand and on full display. The city that was dominated by wealth and wisdom and power and most specifically, pleasure. Of course, along with this is paganism. The hillside uh, of Corinth was dominated by a large pagan temple. You can still see the ruins there to this day. In fact, this week I pulled up a bunch of modern pictures of Corinth as it is now, and it looks like a beautiful place. Um, it's got beautiful beaches and the Mediterranean and, and uh, all these ancient ruins. Well, in this respect, though, think of it as Corinth is kind of like, kind of like a New York City, um, kind of like a Las Vegas, kind of like an Amsterdam or Bangkok. Um, wealthy, diverse, bustling, lots of people, lots of action. But particularly, Corinth was notorious for its sexual vice and sexual immorality. You know, in our day, we have, you know, Las Vegas. They advertise, they like to pride itself in saying what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And it has a kind of notorious reputation. Uh, Well, in the same way, Corinth had a reputation as well. Uh, To Corinthianize was popular Greek, which meant to go to the devil. Uh, To call a lady a Corinthian girl was to imply that she was promiscuous. 
kind of gets to the point. Corinth was a city where being a Christian was not an easy thing. Corinth was a city that had such a, a pagan and wicked culture that it would make it seem, it would seem as though it's the last place in the world to plant a church. It'd be like going to, I mean, Portland or San Francisco nowadays and trying, you know, thinking that's the place to plant a church. And yet, in God's sovereignty, of course, that's what happened. This church was planted. We read in Acts chapter 18, the background here is that Paul reached, uh, reached Corinth right after he left Athens, where he had no success, and he was on his second missionary journey. And he began this method, uh, method of evangelism that he had done in many other places. He met and defend, uh, befriended a Jew, and he began reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue every Sabbath. But soon the Jews turned against him, they got angry, and so he turned to the Gentiles. He met a man then in Acts um, chapter 18 uh, named uh, Titius Justus, who is described as a worshiper of God. That means he is a Gentile convert to Judaism. And he actually lived next door to the synagogue. That's where Paul started to begin seeing converts. People began to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ among the Gentiles. But the Jews still persecuted him, and they were plotting against him. And the Lord appears to Paul in a vision in Acts chapter 18, verse 9, and Jesus says to Paul, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this, I have many in this city who are my people. The ensuing result was that Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. The church was planted. Remember, I point all this out because it shows us the sovereignty of God in his plan of redemption. If you are a traveling missionary, you would probably look at Corinth and say, there is, that's the last place in the world where a church is going to be planted. If you were a missionary or evangelist, you would probably think something like, well, the Jews don't believe in their Messiah, but at least they're moral people. At least they have standards. At least they're not pagan idolaters. At least they have the Old Testament Scriptures. But it was the moral and the most religious who are the most hostile to the Christian faith. Instead, the Lord directs Paul to one of the darkest places in the ancient world, and he tells him, I have many in that city who are my people. There are many here, Paul, whom I have chosen for salvation. There are many here who are enslaved to wicked and pagan and ignorant sexual immoralities and every vile practice, but I have reserved them for myself. Brethren, God is sovereign. God had a purpose. God has a people. And, and it, the, the message, the, the lesson for us is that, you know, no matter how far gone a culture may seem to be from our perspective, God's purposes will stand. And yes, sometimes the more wicked the society, the more receptive some are to the gospel. But 
That's why, though, as we will see when we get into chapter 1, that Paul continually points back to the wisdom and the word of the cross as the power of God unto salvation. Paul was fearful when he approached Corinth because of its wickedness. He said, I came to you in much fear and trembling and weakness, he says. But that is why, he says also, but my message, my speech, was not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. It is the message of Christ and Him crucified that is the wisdom and the power of God. And this epistle, the background of it, serves to teach us how even in the darkest places, the message of the cross conquers all. And the gates of hell will not prevail. In the same way, the message of the cross is our only hope as a church. Our only hope to remain faithful and persevere in the end. It's our only hope in our culture and in our generation and in our society. The message of the cross. God is sovereign and He exercises that sovereignty through the message of Christ crucified, preached and proclaimed and applied to every area of faith and practice. So there's the sovereignty of God in this background. Secondly though, related here, a cultural context still uh, uh, helps us understand the sovereignty of God. But uh, secondly, we also see how vulnerable we are to the culture around us. That's kind of a second theme. Our vulnerability to the culture around us. I'm not going to rehash just how wicked Corinth was, but let me rehash it. <clears throat> One scholar summed it up this way. Cosmopolitan Corinth was a groundswell of every sin, iniquity, and vice in the ancient world. The characteristics of the culture there were luxury, spiritual arrogance, pride, sexual license, vanity, covetousness, greed, filthy ambition, self-indulgence, and rampant individualism. One commentator observed that reading 1 Corinthians is like reading an historical account of the city of Corinth itself. Think about how tragic that is, that statement, how sad that is. That, you know, you read the church records and you kind of see the vices that were prominent in that day and age. The point of what you see in this is that the sinful culture in Corinth, the city, had clearly infiltrated the church. The church was in the world, which is what we're called to be, but the problem was that the world was also in the church, which ought not to be. The church in Corinth was a young church. It was just six years old. They were pretty immature, obviously. But, you know, what's different about the church in Corinth as opposed to most of the other churches in the ancient world, most of the other churches in the New Testament, is that a lot of early churches faced persecution, but here it was the opposite. Things were so good in the city. Things were so prosperous, so peaceful, so tolerant that the church began to assimilate the lust and pleasures and idolatries all around them. That's why persecution is not 
always a bad thing, ultimately. Persecution of the church. Oftentimes, more damage can be done when we have it easy and nice and we're wealthy and prosperous. But the boundary between the world and the church had been blurred or had disappeared. So that's one reason why Paul writes, to reestablish that boundary. Christianity is different. You are different. The church is different. And let me show you how and why and why this must be. So in many respects, the the problem in Corinth, everything relates back to how they um, related to the world around them. They failed to properly relate to the world around them. And of course, you don't really need me to say or point this out. That's why this book is so helpful for us today. I mean, aren't the parallels between ancient Corinth and modern America obvious? Listen to another scholar speak about ancient Corinth. Tell me if this doesn't sound like the modern West. The ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual. It was the merchant who made his gain by any and every means. It was the man of pleasure surrendering himself to every lust. It was the athlete, uh, Corinth was famous for holding kind of like an Olympics every two years. It was the athlete steeled to every bodily exercise and proud of his physical strength. These are the true Corinthian types. In a word, the Corinthian was the man who recognized no superior and no law but his own desires. Whew. It's hard not to be reminded here of that phenomenal book by Carl Truman, um, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. What's going on here in the West? So you see here, division in the church. Is it consumerism and individualism a plague of our modern church? Division in the church. Don't so many of our churches, including our own at times, suffer from a lack of community? From a rampant individualism? Shallow and superficial commitment to the church and its worship and its members? Church shopping? Church hopping? You know, looking for a church to meet our needs? To fill all of our preferences? Right To check every box that we have so that we can make sure that we get what we want out of a church. We see that in our day. Don't we see worship wars? Right, Christians with knives at each other's throat about what songs to sing and what style to sing them in? Don't we see arguments over how to observe the Lord's Supper? In fact, you know, if you read our bulletin insert on communion, that's, that's been the most controversial thing in our entire history as a church. People get mad that, at me <laughs> because of how we fence the table. I, I've got some stories for you. Trust me. People have yelled at me. Anger shook their fist at me because of our convictions on the Lord's Supper. Don't we see arguments over the Lord's Supper in our day? Don't we see um, small groups, which are good in theory, but so often they become cliques? So often they become an easy way to spend time with people you like and to avoid the people you don't. Don't we see division in the church all around us today? 
Don't we see sexual revolution making inroads in the church? The church is so often caved on divorce, tolerated it, excused it, treated it as normal. So often caved on premarital sex, boys will be boys. You can't expect young people to actually exercise self-control. It's unrealistic. Of course, homosexuality, transgenderism, that's the main battlefront now. Many churches come out and they say, uh, no pun intended, (laughs) love is love. You were born this way. Live your true self. Who are we to judge? We don't live in a day where we can walk down the street and offer a pagan sacrifice, but aren't we still bombarded with attention of how to be involved in a secular society without compromising ourselves to the gospel? Brother, my my point, I could go on and on, but I'm pressing upon you is the fact that that what the church in Corinth faced is what we face today as well. And the world and the ideas of the culture around us are a real and present danger. This letter will help us navigate those things. They will help us deal with those challenges. Nothing is new under the sun. So so it's going to be important for us to study this book because modern-day America is Corinth. And so much of the church, even, is the church in Corinth. And we need to know that danger. You know, just think about the fact that the, the church in Corinth, the Christians there, they couldn't see it. They couldn't see how much they had caved to culture. And and that's a dangerous place to be. Have you ever watched one of those, um, for lack of a better term, uh, progressive church services online? Have you ever watched one and heard some of the things that they say? I mean, so often it sounds like a political rally for the left. It sounds like a speech that would be given at a pro-choice rally or a gay pride parade. Sometimes I, I hear those things, I'm like, how can they not see that they are just parroting everything that is popular and in vogue in our day? And hey, just, just so that I'm an equal opportunity offender, I would say the same thing about some of those pro-American church services as well. Don't they see they sound like a Trump rally? How do they not see how blind and ignorant they are, how they have conformed to the image of the age around us? Brethren, the church in Corinth couldn't see that they had assimilated the godless ideals around them. And the same is true in our day. So many churches don't see that, that, that they've swallowed cultural ideals, ideals hook, line, and sinker. But this is where we find the remedy. Where is the remedy for that? Do I even need to say it? It's the Word. It's the Scriptures. It's the revelation of God. It's the message of the cross. That's that's what opens our eyes. That's what cuts through us and our culture like a two-edged sword. Brother, we need to know that we are all products of the world around us. Who you spend time with. Who you talk to, the kind of things you listen to, the things that you um, set your mind upon, things that you value, those things will end up shaping your heart and life. They're more powerful than you. It's inevitable and it's inescapable. We're all shaped by something. You are not in control. I hate to break it to you. You're not. I'm not. 
You will always be shaped by the ideas and lusts and ambitions of this world unless there's something more powerful and more prevalent in your life. And that's what 1 Corinthians says. The message of the cross is the power and the wisdom of God and that's what conquers everything in our heart and life. The problem is not the culture. It wasn't the culture in Corinth. It's not our culture. That's not really the problem. Yes, it's a threat, but that's not the problem. The problem is our hearts. We just think of of Adam and Eve in the garden. The problem wasn't the tree. The problem wasn't the serpent. The problem was that they listened to the serpent rather than listening to the Word of God. And the same is true for us. 1 Corinthians calls us to listen to the Word. 1 Corinthians calls us to place the message of the cross at the center of everything so that it shapes our thinking, our community, our worship, our hearts, our homes, our lives, so that we will not be conformed to this world. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what 1 Corinthians aims to do. And so brethren, knowing that we are in a war for our souls and that we are vulnerable to these things around us, one of the most critical um, rules of war is that you better know your enemy. You better know your enemy and you better know your vulnerabilities. Let us read 1 Corinthians then and see our vulnerabilities so that we might cling tightly to the Word, escape the snare of the devil, and escape the lust and lies of the culture around us. Well, brethren, third and finally, let's bring this all and work towards a conclusion here. Another final observation here. Sovereignty of God, um, the threat and danger of conformity to the world, how vulnerable we are, Uh, But third and finally, I've already hinted at it, but we also see in this book, Theology at Work. That's really the theme of the book, Theology at Work. And brethren, in this respect, I want to circle back around and circle back to a question that I asked when we began. If you were in the Apostle's shoes, what would you write to this church? Things had fallen so far and so fast. I mean, wouldn't it just be easy to come out guns blazing? I mean, if I was Paul, I would be furious. I gave 18 months of my life and this is what you do? Doesn't it sound like the Corinthians just need more law? Hey, have you guys ever heard of the seventh commandment? Thou shalt not commit adultery? What is wrong with you? Have you ever heard of the first commandment? Have no other gods before me. Have you ever heard of the tenth commandment? About coveting and now you're suing one another? That's not what Paul does. In fact, it's noteworthy in my research, I noticed a contrast between how ancient and modern commentators evaluate the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, It was really fascinating to me. In contrast to what moderns typically, how they approach it, I found that the ancient church fathers, by and large, they put a great deal of emphasis on what this letter teaches about Paul's, uh, about pastoral leadership. 
I was surprised how many said, this is a book about pastoral leadership. Because modern commentators, you know, tend to look more at more specific things. They miss that. But I think that they were right. I think we learn a lot from this book on how to confront sin in the church and how to deal with Christians who fall into and begin to model the cultural vices of the world around us. So what I mean by theology at work, I don't mean that this book is an Ephesians or a Romans, uh, or even a Hebrews for that matter. It's not. You don't really get a lot of doctrine in this book. You don't really get a lot of theology. It's it's a practical epistle. Um, You know, Paul had... um, he didn't know the Romans, so he's writing to them, you know, basically a systematic theology. He'd spent 18 months with the Corinthians. He's writing to reform their conduct. But as we read, what becomes crystal clear is that all of Paul's practical instruction and correction is carefully grounded in theological principles. And what we'll see as we work through this is that Paul patiently deals with and answers their questions. He probes, he exhorts, he labors to correct their behavior, not just by telling them what to do, giving them a new law. He doesn't want them to obey because he said so. He pulls out the implications of the theology that they had already believed and confessed. So he's not just dropping truth bombs, as we might say nowadays, but he enters into a conversation with them, and he's patient, and he's loving, even in the face of the most ridiculous and scandalous sins. So, a quick survey here. Chapter 1. When I was with you, and this church was planted, don't you see that the power and wisdom of God was at work, Corinthians? Don't you see how many of you um, were not, are not wise according to the world, not powerful, not of noble birth, but that God chose what is foolish and weak? Don't you see that you can only boast in the Lord and nothing else? Don't you see that everything you have has been given to you? What then is the attraction of worldly wisdom? Why are you so divided among yourselves if it was grace that brought you in? Grace and rivalry are opposed to each other. Don't you see this? Regarding sexual immorality, chapter 5 and following. Don't you know that Christ, our Passover lamb, died to cleanse you and to purify you and to bear God's judgment that's coming upon the sexually immoral in your place for your salvation to deliver you from it? Don't you know that who you were before Christ as unrighteous and sexually immoral and idolatrous and homosexual, don't you know that you were like this, but now you've been washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God? Don't you know that you're a new creation? Don't you know that when you sin against your uh, sin sexually, you're sinning against your own body? Don't you know that when you're joined to someone in a sexual intimacy that you bring Jesus Christ into that union because you're united with Him? So are you going to make the members of Christ's body the members of a prostitute? Don't you know that you are not your own, that you were bought with a price and so glorify God with your body? Chapter 8, and idolatry. Don't you know that there is only one God and one Lord and that the other so-called gods and idols of this world are false? 
Don't you know that while you may be able to eat uh, meat sacrificed to idols and, and your soul isn't in danger, that why would you ever do that if it causes your fellow Christian to stumble by doubting the legitimacy of the faith? Don't you know that central to the church's mission is to, becomes all, to become all things to all people so that we might win others to Christ? Don't you know how idolatry destroyed ancient Israel? Why would you not flee from it then? Why would you risk provoking the Lord to jealousy? Why would you not in everything you do, eat and drink, do all for the glory of God and give no offense to the church and imitate the Lord Jesus Christ? Why would you take the table of unity, the table of spiritual nourishment, and weaponize it against people that you don't like? People who are members of the same body and use that for carnal pleasure. Why would you take the spiritual gifts that you have and use them to boast? Don't you know that we're all the same body? Don't you know that we have all the same spirit? Don't you know that these gifts were given to build us up in unison and in love? Don't you know that it doesn't matter what you do in religious devotion, that you're nothing without love? Even if you give your body to be burned? Don't you know that faith, hope, and love will abide forever into eternity, but your spiritual gift in particular will pass away? Do you know the reason why God gave speaking in tongues and prophecy? But it was to strengthen the church and not to tear it down. Don't you know that God is a God of structure and order and this pleases Him so that shouldn't your worship be reflective of that? Don't you, don't you know, chapter 15, that Christ defeated death and that our full inheritance waits that resurrection as well? It's not given to us now, but it awaits. But one day we will be raised with a spiritual body like His. Don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? Like, brethren, I hope you get the point in this. As Paul confronts sin, as he confronts the division and problems in the church, he works to convince them theologically of what they already know to be true, but they weren't living in light of it. And that's why, to go back to the beginning, I said, it's important that we must see this as a true church. No church is perfect. Even the best of churches will sometimes have the worst of sins in their midst. But we must go back that this is a true church and we must realize how central and important doctrine and theology are. What a church believes, I'm going to say this with caution, but what a church believes is far more important than how a church lives. Because right living, mature living, Christian living is but the outworking of sound doctrine. So yes, a church may not be where it should be in living, in maturity. They may put up with some sins that they shouldn't put up with. They may have uh, areas of of ignorance and backsliding and sin that, that are shameful. But the answer is not just stop it, don't do that. The answer is diving deeper into the truth of the gospel and drawing out those implications of who God is, that we have been saved by grace through faith, what Christ has accomplished, what Christ has saved us to and for, and what future hope is laid out for us in the resurrection. Christian living is drawing out the proper implications of gospel truth 
And that is what is on full display in 1 Corinthians, quite unlike any other book. One writer said, 1 Corinthians is an exercise in letter form of what it means to take every thought captive to obedience to Christ. It calls us to discern the truth of the cross as the ultimate wisdom and revelation of God in order to attain the mind of Christ through the illumination of the Holy Spirit that we might live and display that cruciform love that embodies that wisdom. Looking to our resurrection as the ultimate hope and endeavoring to do all things for the glory of God and the good of neighbor. Brethren, this book puts theology at work. The end goal of all theology is the right, proper, godly, holy living that we've been called to. But before we can live that life, we must know and embrace and believe what we've been called to believe in the gospel. And so in this respect then, a healthy and faithful godly church never really moves on from the message of the cross. No matter what we're talking about. Evangelism, missions, planting churches, conversions. Whether we're talking about forsaking sin, living holy lives, confronting the culture with the claims of Christianity, cultivating healthy community, pursuing God-honoring worship, living uh, devoted uh, uh, to the Lord privately, religiously. It all comes not through moving beyond the Gospel to bigger and better and greater things and getting to the real practical stuff of life, but by constantly diving deeper and deeper into Christ and Him crucified and carefully and patiently drawing out those implications therein. If you believe this, don't you know? If you believe this, why would you ever do this? If you truly believe this, this is what your life and your church will look like. That's, brethren, how we approach the book of 1 Corinthians. That, again, is why Christ and Him crucified must be at the center of everything in our churches, everything in our homes, everything in our lives. I mean, don't you know as well, on Sunday morning, we have that reading and announcement of the gospel. We talk about the law, right? We talk about our sin. But it's the gospel that is the power of God into salvation. It is that gospel being read and received that leads them to the grateful obedience of the Christian life. My question to you this morning is simply, have you seen this Savior and have you seen this message? Has the message of the cross broken you? Has the message of the cross enamored you? Is the message of Christ and Him crucified the center of your heart, the center of your home, the center of your church, the center of your lives? That's what 1 Corinthians calls us to. And brethren, by the grace of God, may the Lord bless our study of this book as we work through it, that we too might hold Christ preeminent in all things. Amen. Let's pray.